Welcome to the TES FE podcast with me, Sarah Simons. Joining me this week to whip through all the FE news and views is Ian Pretty. Welcome, Ian. Tell us about what you do in further education. Hi, Sarah, and thanks for inviting me. I'm the Chief Executive of CoLab Group, which represents 37 of the largest FE colleges in the United Kingdom, actively involved in technical education, apprenticeships, and influencing government policy around some of the particular thornier issues in the FE sector right now, such as Institutes of Technology, Sainsbury, Teen Levels, and the like. Lovely. So, you know what's going on, I should imagine. I can't ever guarantee that, but I at least think that I know what's going on most of the time. <laughs> Brilliant. Shall we crack on with this? If we're starting with Julia Belgatai's editorial, who's introducing us to the main piece, which is about young voters. She says in the run-up to the Scottish referendum four years ago, it was one of those lasting impressions of that strange time. Few of us had seen anything like it before or since. And she's talking about the level of engagement around young people. Research has shown that around 90% of 16 and 17-year-olds in Scotland registered to vote in the 2014 referendum on Scottish independence, and 75% of them went on to vote. I mean, it's an interesting area for me, because in one way, yes, I can see that, that engaging young people in the, in the democratic process through, through voting is quite critical. But I think there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of a wider issue here, and I, and I don't really feel that Julia addressed that in the in, in the editorial, and I'm not sure it's addressed in the subsequent article. The issue we have now, I think, in politics and in terms of engagement in politics is more to do with the fact that we don't have a political system where people identify strongly with political parties anymore. It's increasingly the politics of identity. So... It's right what Julia says in terms of the engagement to 16 to 18 year olds in the Scottish independence referendum. But that was a very much a single issue. It's about independence and the identity of being Scottish or, or being British. And I think that sort of raised the, the levels of engagement in like 16 to 18 year olds, but across the whole age groups. If you then look at that in terms of the, the referendum on um, Brexit, you didn't see such a significant increase in the, in the numbers of young people engaging that. It went up for sure, but not nearly as much as in Scotland. And then if you look at the, the general election last year, there's a lot of commentary about a, a youth quake um, in terms of the, the higher levels of, of, of young people engaging in the political process and voting that election. It's actually not borne out by the statistics. The, um, the British Education Study said that the reality was that there was, there was a higher increase in people amongst 30-year-olds and older age groups, but no significant increase in the 18 to 24-year age bracket. The thing about the issue we have now is possibly less whether it's 16 to 18-year-olds should be given the vote. It's more of an issue about how do people engage in a political system that is rapidly changing. It's almost we're having a conversation as a bunch of 50-year-olds, um, and I am in my 50s, in a world that we see as opposed to a world that 16 to 24-year-olds see. So they were both fascinating articles, but I, neither of the articles seemed to me to address that fundamental issue. How do you operate in an era uh, where it's the politics of identity rather than the politics of identifying with a political party? How do you get people engaged in that process as a result of that? That's interesting. What you're saying about the lack of engagement, perhaps that will be increased if they were allowed to vote at 16 and it's something that we we were talking about more in the education environment with them knowing that they're going to have a stake in it. But is that true? That, that's one of the arguments that the people are therefore participating in a democratic process. Yet we're from a generation where we didn't get the vote until we're 18. 
so it, it kind of implies, if you think about it, if you, if, you, if you don't have the vote between 16 and 18, that somehow you're not going to engage in the democratic process when you're older. Yet all of the evidence shows that older people are more engaged in the democratic process than younger people. Is that not because there are more policies aimed at older people than there are younger people? No, I, I think it's whether or not you wish to actively engage in the democratic process, that process on voting, which is ultimately the, the sole main thing that we have in the democratic process. So to imply that if you haven't got the vote between 16 and 18 means that somehow you will not engage in the democratic process is, to me, is, is, is slightly false because it would imply, therefore, that older generations were less likely to vote than, than younger people, which is not the case. There's a wider issue here about how do you get people to engage in an era when it's all about identification, you know, identification based on, on your religion, your religious values, based on issues like the environment, based on issues like your sexuality. How do you attract people into that process? One of the bigger issues you've got in the political system, and I think that this is where I think young people are disengaging, is that we've moved into a political system where the political parties almost are doing retail politics. You know, how do I line up a whole yeah. load of goodies to get somebody to vote? So if you line up all the goodies to old people to vote, yeah, of course they're going to vote. So yeah, I'll have some of that. So the standout actually is the Scottish referendum because that was about identity, about am I Scottish, am I British? Single issue, absolutely. Moving into the main piece, which was written by Jonathan Owen, FE joins the fight to lower the voting age to 16. The Association of Colleges has added its structure and organisation to cross-party support for giving young people more rights. I'll be honest, the bit that leapt out for me was David Hughes discussing how reticent colleges initially were to join this. It says, however, getting support from the AOC's membership has not been easy, admits Hughes. Campaigning for extra funding for colleges is one thing, but asking for colleges to get behind an initiative to fight for the rights of their students is a different matter. He says, when we started talking about the campaign to members, there were lots of raised eyebrows and questions about whether we should be doing something like this and whether it was too political. That made me a little bit cross. Aren't we there to support our young people to have choices and surely something that gives them increased power and increased agency is something that we should be on board with without it being a raised eyebrow I mean especially for the benefits it could give to FE you know we're talking about the 16 to 18 voting system potentially being based within colleges so it perhaps gives more attention from the political parties to what's happening in FE because there's great big chunks of potential new voters there. That's a valid point. I can I can see the struggle um, between FE colleges signing up to something that, that looks overtly political. I don't see it as overtly pit- political because there are, there is cross party support for this. I mean, by and large, it'll, it'll yeah. vary from party to party. So, it, to me, it, this particular issue of sixteen to eighteen is not backing Labour on backing the Tories. It, it really doesn't come down to that. It's just no. simply an issue about the rights and wrongs. And we've, we've just discussed um, yeah. that, those wider contexts. There is a, there's an interesting issue that maybe underlies that. And it's a challenge, as, as you know, and a lot of people probably listening to this know, that I, I've not come from the, um, the FE sector. I've come from the commercial sector and government before that. I think there is a, a wider issue about how FE sees its role generally in, in the United Kingdom in terms of its, its, its engagement in, in the wider economy, its engagement outside of the sector. And that's kind of reticence that we don't want to go and do these things because dot, dot, dot. It, it's, it's almost a reticence that we don't want to actually get outside of, of the role that we see 
representative bodies like the AOC or membership bodies like um, Colab Group playing. There's almost an issue there about how do FE colleges, through the, the rep bodies and the membership bodies that they've got, start to turn around and say, actually, we are powerful to be able to start to influence beyond just the standard issues about what we need to do around the education system, what do we need to lobby government in terms of the funding that we need to, to support the work of FE into wider issues. And I, you know, I think it's fair that David and the AOC have decided that 60 to 18 voting rights is something that they think is a role for the AOC. Absolutely. You know, and I think that is fine. You're talking about other issues. You're talking about the economy, issues about young people. I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think the, the challenge the sector has to have is to what extent does it want to be far more externally focused because it's a key part of, of what we need to succeed as a country as opposed to we're just going to narrowly focus our issues down to, to some very tight things that which are basically the impact they have, what impacts government policy might have on FE. That's the issue. And I think, it, you know, good for David that he's feeling that he ought to be widening that debate somewhere else. But it's a debate that needs to be had in the sector. Yeah. But if we want to have a voice in the conversation, we're going to have to start piping up. Get outside of our comfort zone, yeah. I think is the word we're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> right, let's move on to the next one. Um, this is written by Karen Redhead, who is Principal and Chief Executive of Derwentside College. The headline is Help Employers Navigate Apprenticeship Courses. She's talking about the government's focus on apprenticeship growth as articulated in its 3 million starts target initially led to widespread concerns that quantity was being pursued at the expense of quality. There's been a more recent shift towards a focus on quality, but even the major players don't appear to agree on what high quality is or how the reforms should proceed. So she's talking about more partnership between FE and employers. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I want to make Karen. She sounds brilliant. I couldn't, there's not much <laughs> I could disagree with in this, this article. I think it's, it's really well written. It's really well thought through. We've got an interesting challenge at the moment. I mean, the government always sets targets, you know, three million apprenticeships and what have you. It's just normal. It's what what government does, and you, you just have to live with that. I and mean, I, I was a senior civil servant. It's what you do. I think she's spot on. And what the major issue here in terms of making the apprenticeship system under the new funding model work is partnership. It is collaboration. It's about how employers who can articulate what they want in terms of the potential skills they need, and the education providers, and I see the FE sector as the most significant part of that provision, how they they use their skills, both as educators, as people that are real experts in curriculum design. I, and I have to say, I am stunned by the, the people that do curriculum design. I don't even know how they do it because I'm just it's just an amazing skill that they've got. You know, and that's something I've watched over the last two and a half years of, of being in this job. It's just incredible. But employers don't know how to do that. Employers can articulate what they need. It's the educators and the education sector, and particularly FE, that can design curriculum that actually meets those needs. So I think one of the biggest challenges we've got at the moment is that there's a constant refrain from DFE and from IFA. It's employer-led, it's employer-led, it's employer-led. But if employers don't know how to get what they want, you're always going to have a problem. So you need to have partnership, you need to have collaboration. That's how it's going to be successful. That, I think, is potentially one of the reasons why we've seen a lower level of apprenticeship start since the advent of the apprenticeship levy. It's because people still haven't worked out what it is they want yeah. and how they're going to get it. Yeah, uh, and, and I think if there's no tightly coupled conversation going on between employers 
and the FE sector, then that target will never be met. We will have lower levels of apprenticeship levy and unused levy spend is likely to wind up in, in the hands of Treasury in the consolidated fund and never be used for any skills training ever again. If this target was just, you know, magicked out of the air, does it matter that it doesn't get met? I think it matters that we should seek to achieve it. I, government has set that target. You know, FE has always said that it's, it, it's front and centre of, of, of training and skills and technical education then we should be working to try to achieve that target. We shouldn't be just sitting down, it's an unachievable target. We should have a, a bloody good go at getting there. But, but the key thing on all of this is how do we make sure there is a much closer collaboration between industry and employers and FE to make sure that we do get good quality apprenticeships and that we do get young people and also people in their mid-career fully trained and fully equipped to meet the skills needs of the UK. And, and that, that has to be the priority. If that gets us to 2.5 million apprenticeships rather than 3 million, so be it. We might even get to 4 million, who knows? Yeah. I want to talk about this piece about Sir Jerry Berrigan, a profile by George Ryan, because it links directly to what we've been talking about. Apprenticeship reforms put the onus back on employers. I'm just going to read a little piece out of it. Sir Jerry says, these apprenticeship reforms are putting the onus back on employers to recognise that they can't expect the school system or society to somehow generate the skills they need. They have a responsibility to do it themselves. He adds, from my perspective, these reforms are very much about getting employers re-engaged in identifying what skills they need and to help us develop apprenticeships that meet those skills needs. So that, to me, does not go on the same track as what we've just talked about in Karen Redhead's piece. So Jerry is the Institute for Apprenticeships chief exec. I thought it was an interesting article, and uh, mm. yeah, that is quite a provocative statement, and, and maybe that was the intent. I struggle with this notion that industry doesn't do anything around investing in skills. I mean, I, I came from Capgemini, a technology company, where there was massive, constantly massive investment in the skills needed to do things like software development, what have you, because in a service-based industry like tech, if you haven't got people with the skills, you haven't got a business. Yeah. And there was a whole constant retraining of people going on to make sure they had the right, constantly had the right skills to do the work that they needed to do. So I don't really buy into that. I also, most of the big, big firms are investing massively now in talent management. And talent management is very much geared towards how do you retain the best at your company, so sort of talent, talent retention, and also talent acquisition. So they invest huge amounts of money in that whole issue around talent management. So it's always been there. I think it's, it is right that the apprenticeship levy is in place and that industry is, is effectively paying but I also go back to our earlier conversation. I don't see how you can just then turn around and say to industry, right, it's your levy, you work out what you've got to do, and you just tell everybody. I mean, there's a real risk that we've got, and you kind of see me seeing this in some of the trailblazers and, and the standards, that it has been designed by industry without knowing the context of how you deliver in terms of curriculum. So if you, you're on the risk that if everything is just designed by industry and then it's thrown over a wall to the other side and then say, okay, get on with that, um, and, and deliver us against that curriculum without the curriculum people saying well yeah but what do you mean by that what does that mean how do you do that then you've got this complete disconnect much better if you bring both sides together to design the stuff i have no issue with being employer-led but I, I don't think we should assume that industry knows anything about 
curriculum. So I think it goes back to the, the earlier piece by Karen. It has to be about partnership. I was interested in reading about Sir Jerry as well, that he's come straight from a very senior position in the military into this very senior position in the FE and skills sector, similarly to Martin Dole, who was the CEO of the Association of Colleges before David Hughes. And it got me wondering if there's something between military leadership and, and, and the skills sector leadership. I, is that not, not a massive, co- is that. That not a massive coincidence, <laughs> these two huge jobs? Well, I, the, the serious side on that is, and, and, and you know, it, it's the case with Jerry and with Martin, I'm not going to comment on what you just commented on. That Martin's a mate of mine. So, um, uh, oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Martin. I think he's fabulous. But if you actually look at it, the military, the army, the navy, and the air force invest huge amounts uh, in in training and have very strong, very effective systems of internal training and development and friendships. Uh, the RAF have been delivering apprenticeships for a hundred years. So the RAF is, I think, it's got it's a hundred years of the RAF this year. It has been delivering apprenticeships at the same site. In, at RAF Halton for the last 100 years. They are experts in apprenticeships. Yeah. People like Martin, who have come from that background of going into the, the HR and the training operations of the RAF, and then subsequently gone into the AOC. Yeah, I mean, they are, these are people that we should be attracting into the sector because they've got different insights, different knowledge. And I think it is true that you know, the military invest heavily, and not just in, in the kind of the things that we assume, like flying aircraft or, or being able to fire guns and what have you. But it's, if you think about all the trades that sit behind there, yeah. things like hospitality, automotive, what have you, they have vast amounts of insight that we should be leveraging in the sector. We shouldn't be afraid as a sector to turn around and look outside of the sector for people that might have different perspectives, different skills and challenge how we think. Yeah. Where I, I semi-disagree with, with Jerry is that I don't think you just leave, put the onus totally on industry. It has to be collaboration. Otherwise, it, it will fail. Right, let's finish off with uh, my piece I'm on about. Yeah, what were you on? <laughs> did, you, did you? Right, okay, here's what happened. There was a, a friend on Facebook who was asking for advice about their toddler who was having a not sleeping at all phase which loads of us have gone through with our kids. And I remember at the time, I was so tired that I was crackers. I could I could barely get through the day when you're having two hours sleep a night, that sort of thing. And somebody had advised these lovely parents that they should value this time that they're having with this, this small child because they'll look back at it in 10 years' time and think, oh, wasn't that wonderful? Now, I look 10 years back for when my lad was very little and I don't think, oh, wasn't that brilliant to be like a zombie through lack of sleep? I think, oh, thank God we got through that bit into the more fun bits. And it just set me off thinking about the fictionalisation of different times of, of life. You know, there's all this thing with teenagers about how oh, it's wonderful, it's so freeing, it's, it's school days are the best days of your life. But what if they aren't? What if they're a bit rubbish? What if it's overwhelming, if there's, there's too much going on? What if you feel like you're not enough? And I got a bit cross about this whole external idea of what you should be at various points in your life. Does that help? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. It's a fascinating issue because we, we kind of stereotype different stages of our life that this is you no know, this is a fantastic area you know, as you say you know being a teenager is fun i think for a lot of people it's not fun and it can be difficult and it can be hard 
think of somebody who is 16 or so struggling with who they are in terms of maybe their sexuality it's it can be incredibly difficult it can be very isolating but there's an assumption that you know it's fun 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 when you're a teenager i have to say that when i hit 40 i think the sky's the limit i love being 40 i've always been loved in my 40s i'm quite enjoying being in my 50s but you know i, I think you're right is that this notion of who you are and what you are at different cycles in your age is is, is fascinating and the assumption these are things that you should embrace and you don't like a crying baby. I have to say, I've never had children, so I have no idea what it's like. And frankly, I don't want to know. Um, it, it, <laughs> but it, it is interesting that, that you, sh- you should assume that people are having a certain experience at a certain stage of their life when actually they may not be. And uh, my point was saying that, you know, as teachers, we have experience on our side. If people, when they've got to sort of middle age, if they haven't had a terrible time at some point, they're either very lucky or they're... They're lying. Oh, yeah, or they're lying. <laughs> you know, because at the time they get to 40, everybody has a story. There isn't one of us who sailed through it. <laughs> Do you feel like a grown-up yet, though? I'm still waiting to feel like oh, a grown-up. Oh, no, I'll never be a grown-up. That's just too boring. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks ever so much for talking to me, and I've really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. This has been the TESFE podcast with Ian Pretty and me, Sarah Simons. Join us again soon for all the FE news and views. Thanks very much for listening, and have a marvellous week. <laughs>